So first of all, let me say that if you, um, if you timed yourself to get here just in time for the sermon, you've already missed the best part of the whole sermon. I might bring it back just to those who came late. It's okay. It was my desire this year for us to have a through line, for there to be some simple way for us to move through from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur and to take all of it with us. I wanted that because these 10 days of turning are so precious and so important in our lives and in the Jewish calendar. They don't come again. Sometimes I leave the holidays, and even though I've been standing for 20-something hours, I don't even remember what it is, and I've spoken 20 times, and I said, my wife can attest to this, and others, I say, let's do it again. I want to have a holidays every quarter. Because by the end of the holidays, almost everything that I personally, and I think many of us individually, need in our lives are available to us. We've sung together. We've thought for a moment collectively, not alone at home, but collectively about the most important things in our lives. We've sought in some way to pause on what it is that we do day to day, week to week, in order for us to have some perspective, some sense of what it is that's important so that we might make choices that are in alignment with our highest values and consistent with who we are. We've paused in order to be together with a group of some friends and some family, but mostly with strangers, to sing and to cry to allow a reverie of the past and fantasies and dreams of the future to flood our hearts and our minds. That sounds like a recipe for good living. I don't know about you, but that's why I go to a Bruce concert. <laughs> Thunder Road! <laughs> I believe in the promised land. So we've come to the center point of the service in, in, in the sense that I wanted very much for us to remember. I'll go over what we began with last night. That truth is emblazoned on the monsters, on the gremlins, on those places in our lives, our thoughts, our feelings, our beliefs, our structures, our institutions have writ large across their foreheads, true, something to teach us, something that both unleashes a potential danger but also enlivens and makes it possible for us to live. Truth emblazoned on the forehead of that mythic legend called the golem becomes the operative truth in Shelley's Frankenstein that human hands and human hubris we create often by our own choices and sometimes without choosing. The monsters that we are invited to try to see clearly that this entire 10-day period called the 10 days of turning involve what's called shuva or repairing or repairing or repenting or restoring and that it begins with simply acknowledging the truth of our lives as we said last night 
As my friend Nancy Flam said, in the world, the world that is as it is. What the Buddha might have taught and said, we just have to look for a moment at what is true. And that before we can change what is to what it might become, it first has to be what it is. As long as I'm not honest about what is, I can't ever get to what might be. If my eyes are closed or in Young Frankenstein, you missed that clip, a lot of you. (laughs) Gene Wilder's character standing there with his friends saying, love will heal. We have to simply notice how we are the way we are in the moments when we imprison ourselves. We might call that opening the door. Can you all say that? Open the door. door. There's a door over there. (laughs) Scary. I'm going in. And then this morning, we talked about what happens once we've unleashed the door, we've walked in and we've looked at it. Staying in the room. Can you all say that? Stay in the room. I thought to myself, is that really a tricky way to manipulate people to stay here during my sermon? But it's not. <laughs> I mean that when it's all flying and it's hitting the fan, not the nice clothing that we wear for Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur and we're going to dress in our finest. I'm talking about when it's really important. When we're scared. When we're nervous. When we're angry. When we're short-tempered. When everything is pushing us to behave in ways that are unskillful both for ourselves and those around us. In those moments, stay in the room. In those moments, breathe. In those moments, expand to make more room. There's a dictator inside of me. I'm going to call my gremlin dictator, I don't know, Mr. Dictator. (laughs) When things are not going my way, and that's usually the way I like it, He wants to force, he wants to force my kids to get out the door on time when they don't want to. He wants to force me to speak in ways that I think will get me what I want. He wants to force me to be in a place that isn't my best. Because after all, in the end of the day, we just want what we want, and everyone who walks in the way is in my way. And so, in addition to simply noticing how we are so that we might undo what the Rambam calls the inevitable chain of dominoes, of, he says it there, dominoes. Maimonides says, we, each and every one of us, come to a moment of choice. And true tshuva, the kind of tshuva that really matters, not the kind that we sing about, but the kind that we sweat about, happens when we choose differently. So 
So I've been trying since last night to infuse the services with some playfulness on purpose. The second and most important space Rick Carson articulates for our own work is not only simply noticing what is, because it's true, chirute, emet, but playing with options. Can you all say play with options? Play with options. And the operative term is play. When we have more room, we have more space, and we have more to choose from. I remember as a child that my mother used to read a book to me when I went to bed. My brother and I would sit in bed and would say, Mom, say, Iris sleeps over. How many people have heard of Iris sleeps over? It's a very simple plot structure. <laughs> Ira has a teddy bear named Fufu. That's right. I said it in a church shul, Fufu. Now, the thing about Fufu is that it's all great because Ira loves Fufu, but Ira, and here's where the plot thickens, Ira is on his way to a sleepover, hence the name, Ira Sleeps Over. Ira is going to be sleeping over at his next-door friend, at his next-door neighbor's house. And he's debating with his parents whether or not he should bring his teddy bear. He comes to his mother and says, should I bring my teddy bear? And she says, of course. He says, but my friend's name? He'll laugh. His mother says, no, he won't laugh. Comes to his father, asks the same thing. His father says, he won't laugh. Comes to his sister, and she says, he'll laugh. <laughs> Wait a second. How did you guys, do you guys know the book? Wow. <laughs> so, so he decides not to take his teddy bear. He does this a couple of times. I'll keep it short. He goes next door, and he has an incredible time at his friend's house. They're playing. They're playing stamps, and they're playing cops and robbers. It's all amazing. It's time for lights out, and his friend's father comes in and turns out the light. He says, time for bed. That's the way my mother used to say, time for bed. He goes into bed. The lights go out, and he begins to tell him a story. He gets scared. They're telling ghost stories. All of a sudden, his friend says, wait a minute. I have to get something. He turns to his drawer and takes out a furry little thing that Ira notices, and Ira says, what's that? And his friend says, oh, nothing. <laughs> what's that? Oh, oh nothing. <laughs> he said, is that your teddy bear? He said, mm-hmm. <laughs> what's his name? Ta-ta. Iris says, wait a minute, I'll be right back. <laughs> he goes next door, he gets his, his, you know, parents are like, well, he comes to get the teddy bear, he's like running out the house, and his sister's saying, he'll laugh. And Ira looks back and goes, he won't laugh. 
Fufu and Tata. You also struggle with your kids? You also struggle with your anger? You also struggle with being real? You're also having a hard time sleeping at night? You're also concerned about the future of the country? You're also afraid? You're also We live in siloed worlds where we think that if we don't admit what it is that we're holding back, our little secret, that somehow it'll be okay. Or that they'll laugh. Or that it won't work, or that it doesn't matter, or that it's not important, or... When we simply notice how we are, the way we are, when we imprison ourselves in that very moment and we have the room, we might open up to be able to acknowledge and therefore discover and therefore share a simple truth that we have been unwilling to speak. The quintessential figure in rabbinic literature for 2,000 years who represents and embodies emet is Jacob. Titain emet Yaakov says the verse, let Jacob's truth be given. And if anyone who has ever studied the Bible knows if there's any one character who should never, ever be associated with the truth, it would be our patriarch, Jacob. Jacob's name means the deceitful one, the one who was crooked, the one who came in an oblique way to steal his brother's blessings, the one who came in an oblique way to his uncle Laban and stole from him. Jacob is not Mr. Truth. But Jacob gets his name Truth, I think, because Jacob had to struggle with what it was to lie about who he was. You all remember this in your little biblical classes that you studied. Jacob's mother, Rebecca, was concerned that his father, Jacob's father, Isaac, would not give Jacob a blessing. He would give it instead to his brother Esau. And so Jacob came, Jacob's mother, Rebekah, Rivka, came to Jacob and said, wear these pelt coats that your brother Esau wears and go to your father who's blind and, and tell him that you are Esau. And in a moment of truth, Isaac, suspecting and suspicious of Jacob's the gestalt of it. His father, Isaac, says to him, Mi'ata b'ni, who are you, my son? Mi'ata. And Jacob answers, Anochi Esav b'chorecha. I am Esau, your son. But before that moment, that moment of deception, that moment of self-hiding, of self 
Jacob's mother, Rebecca, comes and says, here, I have a good idea, where are these coats? And Jacob's response is powerful. He says, but mom, maybe my father might touch me. What if he touches me? Before, right, right before she gives him the pelts. What if he touches me? That's why she gives him the pelts. And a famous commentator says that the word, perhaps he might touch me, ulai, doesn't mean I hope he doesn't. The word ulai perhaps means I hope he does. Jacob was saying to his mother, I hope my father touches me and finds me out. I hope my father touches me and finds me out and takes me out of this lie, of this deception, of this game, of this act that has become a pact. My edict against myself, I will not say I am Jacob. And of course, that follows him his whole life. And Jacob, who is the man of deception, will confront someone, an angel, and wrestle with that angel, with that gremlin, with that monster. And at a moment of truth, Jacob when asked by the angel, not when he is wrestling with the angel, not when he is involved, but when he is in a place of playful options, Jacob says in response to the very question he was asked, am I Jacob? My name is Jacob. And when he named his truth, when he told his name, when he said the thing that could not be said, when he allowed consciousness to simply notice how he was, who he was in that moment, and to allow truth to come to his mouth, that shofar, that blast that came out of his mouth changed his world and ours. We the descendants of that moment are called after that moment. We are the ones who speak that which cannot be spoken. We stay in the room and we have options. In that moment, Jacob's name becomes both Yisrael, the one who is straight, and the one who is Yaakov crooked. His options have doubled his own self-understanding increased. He is no longer trapped in one way of being. He is playful. He is mitzachek, which means laughter or play in a way that as a son of a father whose name was Will Laugh means something. Jacob could play with things that his father, who promised laughter in the future, could never experience. I sat in my office a month ago with a man I'd seen five years ago. We had grown up together in Long Island, and I had not seen him since then. And so five years ago, he heard that I had started a synagogue, and my path had been an interesting path, and da 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 And so he made an appointment to see me, and, I, and we hung out a little bit, and we had lunch. We shared stories about our journeys and shared stories about our kids. And then I didn't hear from him for the last five years, until a month ago. He showed up in my office and he said to me, I've been on a journey. As an Orthodox man, I've known, he said, for many, many, many years, the truth about who I am. But it wasn't until my son had to go to a boarding school for developmental and behavioral issues and that the system of the boarding school demanded that me and my wife, we would come together and we would actually talk 
in truth. And the only thing that was required was that we were completely and absolutely transparent with each other. It became abundantly clear to me that I couldn't live a lie any longer. And even though I knew that coming out meant being ostracized by my family, even though coming out meant that I might lose my friends, even though coming out meant that my marriage would, of course, dissolve, and maybe my kids wouldn't love me, and I had no idea, but I had to at least let that truth come to my lips. I had to say it loud and proud. And here I am, he said. As soon as I acknowledged the truth, as soon as I simply noticed who I was, I had options. I didn't feel trapped. I didn't feel as though I had to be Jacob. I could be Israel. I could be Jacob. And there was life, he said, after that truth was acknowledged and that option was taken. He stayed in the room and he played with options. Another friend of ours here in this community to whom this is dedicated when I spoke about this years ago also had a similar journey where she acknowledged that she had been born into the body that wasn't her body. And having to leave a world behind, she embarked. She noticed the truth and she played with options. This is the power of the shofar. The power of the shofar is that it begins from a narrow place and then expands. The sound begins with barely an audible sound. The narrow place, like the birth womb itself, from tomb to womb, it births the sound of truth incipiently at first. It's just a little cough. Or at least when I blow it, it is that. We cough the truth. We get closer. True. 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 Like resistance against all the forces that would have us be quiet and to not name the thing. The shofar is the power of the self, of the community, of the nation, of the world to say the truth and to thus birth a world. The shofar will include both the ugliness of broken and the truth of and the beauty of a long sound. It will be all of those things. We play with options and we have many voices. And here's what happens, everyone, when we play with options. Hello, handsome. <laughs> you talking to me? Hey, you wrestler, you want to know my name? I'm Jacob. When we simply notice and open the door, when we walk in and stay in the room, we find creative options when those two rules 
are held fast, and we become the playful sound of the shofar. We say, you know what? Let me tell you the truth this way. Hello, handsome Richard. Hello, handsome. So I invite you in a moment, before we hear the shofar, we'll be chanting this chant that we began last night, Emet, Truth. When we think of truth, we often think of something serious, we think of something profoundly heavy, but what might it look like to play this morning with truth and sounding or admitting a truth to ourselves? Hello, handsome. There's truth. Sometimes the things that we are most afraid of when we approach them with a place of playfulness become shockingly beautiful. Going back. Here we go. Please rise if you're able. 